Well, do take your Bible and turn to that passage we read in Mark chapter 11. You may need the Bible just to check up that what I'm telling you is true, so there's that. Uh, this little section that we read kind of stands alone in many ways, and yet the, uh, the first thing you notice as you read the section is the reference to the fig tree and the reference to Peter's question uh, or, or remark as he points the master to the fig tree, which is now withered. And uh, he then goes on to talk about moving mountains, and it's all rather random if you come to it without seeing it in its context. So let me try to paint the picture. Jesus has entered Jerusalem, the triumphal entry that we celebrate before Easter has come, and he has gone into the city. He's raised expectations. The expectations he's raised are principally to do with his messiahship. He's avoided that. Uh, he, in Mark's gospel, really the first part of Mark, is intent on demonstrating to you that Jesus is God. Jesus has avoided the Christ word, that is the Messiah word. He's done that because of the way in which people think of the Messiah as more of a political figure, militaristic figure. Now that he has ridden into Jerusalem on a, a beast of peace, uh, on the, uh, the foal of a donkey, uh, he's made the point that he is not uh, a military figure. He is not that kind of Christ or Messiah. And yet he's welcomed as if he were. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All of that has happened. And uh, the first thing he does when he goes into Jerusalem, we've looked at this before. Uh, we're going to look at it from a different angle uh, this evening. The first thing he does when he enters Jerusalem, verse 11, is that he went to the temple. He's been to the temple before, but also always incognito on the down low, but now he does so now publicly. He went to the temple, and he looked around at everything. It says, when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out of the town to Bethany to meet with the twelve apostles. That's the background. The temple is very much in the mind of Jesus, and you'll see why uh, and what the implications are. In the next little section there, the next day he's traveling from Bethany, and he's hungry, and he sees a fig tree in the distance in leaf. And you would expect a fig tree in leaf to have figs on it, but he could find none. And uh, he curses it. Or what he says is this. He says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. <clears throat> and his disciples heard him say that. That sounds, uh, I mean, if, if you or I did that, it would be impetuous. It would be bad form, I suppose. We'd be misusing our powers. But Jesus is doing it for a particular purpose. And you learn what the purpose is in the next paragraph. They came to Jerusalem, they entered the temple, 
And immediately Jesus begins to drive out those who sold and who bought in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. All of this part of the machinery of the worship of the temple. All of this machinery is taking place in the court of the Gentiles, which is the only public space there is, allowing people who are seeking God to come and to learn about him. So Jesus is obviously very angry at what the authorities, the Jewish authorities, the religious authorities have done with their religion. He comes as the Lord of the temple. It's his temple. When they come to worship and they bow before the Holy of Holies, they're bowing before him. They've been doing that from time immemorial. And here is the Lord come to his temple. And he cleans it, cleanses it. So then we come to our passage here. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Now, this whole idea of withering of the fig tree does have a biblical background. In the Old Testament, the withering of the fig tree is an act of judgment. In Isaiah chapter 34, all the host of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled up into a scroll, and all their hosts shall fall down as a leaf falls from the vine and as a fig falls from a fig tree. Talking about the last judgment. Or in Jeremiah chapter 8, I will surely consume them, says the Lord. There shall be no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree, and the leaf shall fade, and the things I've given them shall pass away from them. Describing the judgment on Israel in the future. Or again, Jeremiah 24. This is said of the Jews. It says, evil figs which cannot be eaten. God's calling the the people of God evil figs which cannot be eaten. And I will deliver them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth for their hurt, to be a reproach and a proverb and a taunt and a curse. Talking about the lost ten tribes of Israel. So in Matthew then, the cursing of the tree is part of the cursing of a religious system that has lost its way and that is under the judgment of God And in particular, the cursing of the fig tree is a kind of acted parable. Jesus is making a public uh, action that draws attention to to the reasons behind what he is doing as he goes into the temple, checks it out, and then cleans it out. The story of the fig tree represents his judgment against Jerusalem and those in charge of the temple. In Mark's account, the destruction is complete. All the figs have gone. There are none now growing. The reason is unbelief. They would not accept him. He came to his own place and his own people did not recognize him. So he brings judgment. Jesus comes to bring judgment, not to the Gentile world, but to the religious establishment who have deceived the people and who are accountable to God for their deception. He's come and looked around the temple 
as he checked out the fig tree and looked under the leaves for figs. He found no fruit on that tree. He found no fruit in the temple. No evidence of godliness. No evidence of spiritual vitality and life. No evidence. And uh, we need to check our own hearts sometimes as uh, God examines our hearts as we come to worship Him and we expose ourselves to His Word and His truth. We are to examine ourselves. Cyril of Jerusalem, one of the early church fathers, puts it like this, addressing those who are preparing to be baptized. He says this to them, You are now being joined with the holy vine. If then you abide in the vine, you grow into a fruitful branch. But if you do not abide, he's quoting from John chapter 15, if you do not so abide, you will be burnt in the fire. Let us therefore bring forth worthy fruit. For let it not come about that it should happen to us what happened to that barren fig tree in the gospel. Let not Jesus come in these days and utter the same curse upon the fruitless in his church. But instead, may all of you say, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. In other words, fruitful, vitality, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering, all of those things that we find described in Galatians chapter 5. So Jesus comes in looking for fruit, finds none, and in our passage that we read this evening, Peter draws this to the attention of everybody. He says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And at that point, Jesus now shifts the emphasis away from the Jerusalem temple, which he's cleansed and abandoned. And the focus now becomes these few disciples that are with him. These men and women who believe in him and trust in him. The focus is that the Old Testament, now the Old Temple rather, has passed away. It's empty. It's just barren, a barren fig tree. And its place has been taken by the ecclesia, that is the church. The Old Temple has been abandoned. It had been fixed in Jerusalem. That's That's where it was based. You had to go to Jerusalem to go to the temple and to worship God. But now the temple will be found to be portable, a portable community. The people of God meeting all over the world, all over the the nations of the world. They will be be found wherever people are found. The old hymn writer put it like this, Jesus, where'er thy people meet, there they behold thy mercy seat. Where'er they seek thee, thou art found, and every spot is hallowed ground. So the old house of worship has been drawn to a conclusion. Shortly it will be demolished by the Romans. It will end for good. A new house is being built, to use the language of the Apostle Peter in his first epistle. Peter says, we all like 
living stones are being built together into a house, spiritual house, in which God dwells. Church, the people, are the stones in which, among whom God dwells. So, with the old house of prayer gone, it's now appropriate for Jesus to address what the new house looks like, the new temple looks like, the temple which is the church. And if you look at what we read, you'll see that it's carved up into three parts. It's one people, Jesus' people, and they are, first of all, a believing people. See how Jesus puts it. He's talking to Peter. Peter is the one who earlier on in this gospel has been the first to confess that Jesus is the Son of God and the Messiah. And Jesus has said that on him, on Peter's confession of, of faith, he would build his church. So Jesus answered them. I mean, it's a question. When, when Peter points out this fig tree, you, you, the question isn't actually asked, but Jesus knows what's going on in Peter's mind. And here's what Jesus says to them. Number one, have faith in God. In other words, Jesus' temple is comprised of people who believe in God. Not any God, but the God who is. The one that Moses was introduced to when God gave him his name, I am that I am. I am the God who is. I am simply he who is. That is, he who exists in and of himself without any material, pre-existent material to keep him going or to, from which he has come. He, he simply is his essence, is his existence, as St. Thomas says. Well, the first hallmark of the church is a believing people, a faithful people. That is, people who confess their faith in God as he's been revealed to us in Christ by the Holy Spirit. The one whose name is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are believing people. And then secondly, Jesus is saying to them that this new temple is comprised of people who not only believe, but who pray. They are a praying people. That's immediately what he goes on to say. Believe in God, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done to him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. This believing, this praying, this praying of faith is an essential component of the Christian life. We're to believe, Hebrews chapter 11 says, we're to believe in the God who is. 
it goes on to teach us that we're to believe in the God who does, that is, the God who acts, the God who has acted supremely in Christ. And it is this God who is the Most High God who rules over the kingdoms of men, to whom the nations are like a drop from a bucket, who weighs the islands as though they were fine dust, who brings down one and exalts another. This is the God who deals with sin and who sends the rain and maintains the regularity of the seasons and who rules the raging of the sea, who feeds the birds of the air, who clothes the flowers of the field and has the breath of man in his hand. This is the God to whom we pray. He upholds everything by the word of his power. All nature is subservient to him. What the law, we call the laws of nature are simply his normal ways of working. There's a way that I go home when I'm driving home. It takes a bridge, and off that bridge I can go down through the, 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 the ordinary streets, or I can take the highway, the motorway, 295. And it's still me that's doing the driving, but I can choose to go home one way or the other way. Both take me in the same direction. I arrive at home, but I've chosen to do things differently. So it is with God. Well, it's not a good comparative, or <laughs> obviously, but with God, miracles are simply Him driving another way than the way He normally drives. The, the ordinary laws of nature as we see them are, are not something that just happen independently of God. They are God's normal way of running the world. And if he diverts, if he does something different, if he raises the dead, that's him just doing the same thing he's doing in a different way. He has everything at his disposal. And the church is to be a praying church. Notice the dangers of misunderstanding the principle have faith in God. Some of us think we should have faith in faith, that somehow or other we should have a certain amount of faith that, that convinces us that we are actually believing. Some people hear some teaching and they go away and they say, well, that, that's all right for him. He has a lot of faith. I don't have that much faith, or I don't have that kind of faith. And there's no doubt that some people God has given to the church, people that sometimes we call saints who have been given a special gift of faith by the Holy Spirit, an extraordinary faith. When uh, George Muller founded his orphanages, for example, he had no resources at all. He simply prayed and the money came in. He didn't do anything. He didn't advertise. He prayed and the money came in for his orphanages. But Jesus here is talking to all of his people, to you, to me, when he says, have faith in God. He puts the emphasis in the Greek. The emphasis is not on our believing, but on God in whom we believe. Because in this whole business of believing, it's not how much I believe but in whom I believe. 
So, the people of God, this new temple, is composed of a believing people and a praying people. And this element of praying, the moving of the mountains here, I, 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 I've searched the fathers. Uh, nobody ever really takes this on head on in the early church, which is, which is they normally do. Um, and we usually check them first to make sure we're, we're in the right direction. Um, let me read to you from what Chris Ostrom says about prayer. He says this, St. Chrysostom. Prayer is an all-efficient panoply, a treasure undiminished, a mine never exhausted, a sky unobstructed by clouds, a haven unruffled by storm. It is the root, the fountain, and the mother of a thousand blessings. It exceeds a monarch's power. I speak not of the faith which is cold and feeble and devoid of zeal. I speak of that which proceeds from a mind outstretched and a child of a contrite spirit, the offspring of sound conversion. This is the prayer which mounts to heaven. The power of prayer has subdued the strength of fire, bridled the rage of lions, silenced anarchy, extinguished wars, appeased the elements, expelled demons, burst the chains of death, enlarged the gates of heaven, relieved diseases, averted frauds, rescued cities from destruction, stayed the sun in its course, arrested the progress of the thunderbolt. In, in sum, prayer has power to destroy whatever is at enmity with the good. I speak not of the prayer of the lips, but of the prayer that ascends from an inmost recesses of the heart, the power of prayer, the power of prayer to move mountains into the seas. I read some passages from Isaiah there in which the seas represent the troubled world of men and women without God in their lives. The seas also represent, in Isaiah, for example, they represent the Gentile nations, the islands, and the far-off places. To, to throw the mountain, we don't know which mountain Jesus has in mind, is it the Mount of Olives, where he's talking to them, by the way? Is it the Temple Mount that he's been visiting? Whatever it is, we can throw the mountain into the sea. It's going to affect, our prayers will affect those Gentile nations who will come to the knowledge of God through the gospel that we preach. And then the third thing he says about the, the people in this church, the temple, they're a forgiving people. A believing people, a praying people, a forgiving people. Whenever you stand praying, he says, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Here's a tall order. And, Jesus says, whenever you stand praying, forgive. That little word, and, 
tells you this is a continuation of and a completion of something. How do we move mountains? How do we win the nations? Faith, okay. Prayer, okay. Forgiveness, question mark. Why does he seem to spoil it all by bringing up such an unpleasant subject? All of us have people in our lives that we will not forgive. But prayer and even believing must go hand in hand with right relationships. Unconfessed sin will mar our relationship to God. And harboring any ill feeling against another will harm our relationship with God. Our forgiveness of others, notice, is necessary if we are to pray aright. I believe one of the greatest causes of an answered prayer is an unforgiving spirit among God's people. If we're not moving the mountains of the temple into the nations, in our church or in our personal lives, it's because we harbor unforgiveness. Maybe we need to look at our relationships to other. I, I think all of us carry a kind of little black book around us, with us. And in that little black book, we keep all the IOUs that we're holding against some other people. We might hold it against Mrs. Jones for what she said about me, or against the pastor because he didn't call. Or because somebody cut us off at the traffic and we recognized who they were and they went to our church and they never, ever said sorry. Forgiveness is when I take all those IOUs that people owe me and I tear them all up. I tear them all up. They don't owe me a thing. They may have wronged me They may have harmed me, but I forgive. I forgive. I forgive. There are some situations, I have to add this caveat, because it's often abused by people who teach what I've just said, and that is this. There are some people you may forgive, but you can never, ever, ever trust yourself back in a relationship with them. I'm thinking perhaps of a spouse who's been that badly beaten by her husband or has been abused in some other form and she's had to leave there. Well, she, can she forgive? Christian people will come alongside and say, you should forgive your husband. You should go back and live with your husband. Maybe it's dangerous to go back and live with your husband. You can forgive him, but maybe you just need to Avoid him for the rest of your life, perhaps. It's going to be difficult. But there is nothing that's too hard for the Holy Spirit to do. There are others, it's perhaps easier to forgive, even though we don't want to. And maybe we don't see obstacles removed because we have no faith. We've never really put our confidence in God through Jesus Christ. 
It may be that you know nothing of prayer because you have never prayed those simple, heartfelt words, Lord, save me. It may be that you don't know how to forgive others because you're not conscious of having been forgiven yourself. Well, let's pray together for a moment and ask that the Lord would deal with those things in our hearts. Lord, you've shown us that Jesus is interested here in the presence of Peter, the relationship to the temple. He's looking and thinking about his people, his church. And he's teaching us that the church is comprised of believing, praying, loving people. Lord, you know our hearts, and we pray that you would deal with us individually, that you would show us how we can be right with you, perhaps even right with someone else. Where we can let something go and get on with our lives and get down to then a really good relationship with you when we pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.